0: Hello everyone, I'm Pastor Sarah, and I'm so glad that you're joining us as we kick off a new series called We Believe. Now, the Apostle John records an account of Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate after he was arrested. And they have this interesting exchange, one that results in Pilate asking, what is truth? Now, John doesn't record Jesus answering the question directly. It seems to be a rhetorical question, as if anyone could know actual real truth. And This is a Roman governor looking into the eyes of a Jewish criminal. How could this so-called king of the Jews possibly know truth? But Jesus had, in the course of his ministry, claimed, I am the way and the truth and the life. He also said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So it would seem that Jesus not only knew the truth, but he was the truth. Now, we've had Jesus' words and his teachings for 2,000 years, and yet we continually find ourselves asking, What is truth? I mean, Pontius Pilate could be any man on any street in America, but as followers of that condemned man, you and I believe that we can know truth. We believe it's found right here in the Word of God. Now the Word of God is 66 incredible books. We've got 39 in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. It was originally written in Hebrew, Greek, some Aramaic. Now, our chapters and verses are not original to any of those languages, but to give us a sense of how big it is, there are 1,189 chapters and over 31,000 verses. So many words. So much truth. That's a lifetime of reading and learning and growing, right? Now imagine if Jesus had handed Pilate this book in answer to his question. Would Pilate have been excited or overwhelmed? We'll never know. But what I do know is that many of us give up on the search for truth before we even really begin. So whether you're intimidated or excited by the length and the breadth of God's word, can we just pause for a moment? Can we just be thankful together that God uses words to reveal himself to us? Can we just be thankful that he chose to reveal himself to us at all? Now, I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's this trending acronym, TLDR, too long, didn't read. A couple of my colleagues were gracious enough to bring me up to speed on this. Basically, when you see this somewhere, someone's giving you a hint that this is going to be a time intensive read. So usually a summary is provided so that you can skim it before you commit to the longer text. Now, for those of us who might be a bit older and who didn't have the luxury of high school or college English classes in the digital area era, this isn't completely unlike Cliff's Notes or Spark Notes. You know those book summaries that some of us used to avoid reading the actual book. Now, listen, I'm a super duper rule follower, and I read every single one of my assigned books, whether I liked it or not. But even I use some Cliff's Notes. Shakespeare and I didn't really get along until I got a hold of those helpful little guides. And maybe some of you never needed them, but I think you're probably lying, right? Our time is precious. Our time is money and time can't be wasted. So a TLDR or sparks notes overview is much appreciated. Thank you very much. Now, the apostles creed is the TLDR of the new Testament. It's the spark notes summary of the Bible. Now, it doesn't in any way replace the need for the Bible, because without the book, there can be no summary. But if you want to give someone a quick overview of what you believe, the creed is your spark notes. Early church father Augustine said, These words which you have heard are in the divine scriptures scattered up and down, but thence gathered and reduced into one, that the memory of slow persons might not be distressed, that every person may be able to say, able to hold what he believes." So for all of us slow persons, incapable of memorizing and remembering all the words of scripture, we have here in the Apostles' Creed a really good summary. Now the Creed helps us to know and to share what we believe. And before we get any further, let me go ahead and read the Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Those are 113 well-chosen words that summarize what we believe. So Pastor Mike and I are going to spend a few weeks digging into the statements found here in the Apostles' Creed. Now, some of you are bored already. I mean, why pull out some old formal statement from way back when? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. First, we're taking the time to go through the Apostles' Creed because the church has found value in this creed for almost 2,000 years. Let's take a brief tour of history. The title does not mean to suggest that the apostles of Jesus actually wrote this creed. Rather, the creed affirms the teachings of Jesus as he passed it on to his apostles. So every word is in agreement with the New Testament doctrine, and it started to come together in the first centuries of the church. You see, confessions of faith, which were often called a rule of faith, were common when a believer decided to be baptized. And over time, local creeds consolidated so that by the sixth century, that's the 500s, the Apostles' Creed was being used in the form we see today. That's at least 1,500 years that Christians like you and me old and young, rich and poor, of every language and nation have been standing together in truth. The early church understood that it needed to be able to teach and declare the essential doctrines of the faith in order to defend against heresy. Now, in the early days, that heresy was Gnosticism. Gnosticism denied the truth of creation, denied the truth of the incarnation and the deity of Christ, denied salvation by faith in Christ, among other things. So before someone could get dunked or sprinkled. The church asked them to publicly recite the creed so that everyone was on the same page about the faith that they were professing. Now remember, when Jesus gave his great commission in Matthew 28, he instructed his followers to baptize disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And his disciples and the church thereafter have done that very thing. So the creed was and is a public confession of faith in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so when we say the creed, we affirm our belief in the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of salvation in Christ alone. So we're dusting off this creed because it's an ancient belief of the church. That's the first reason. The second is because, well, the modern church needs some guardrails. We think We know what we believe, we think, we know what Christianity is all about, but both what we say and how we live reveals gaps in our understanding. And so the creed is like guardrails. It literally keeps us from driving off into ditches, right or left. It keeps us centered on truth. Let's look at some research that was just done in the last year. This is from the State of Theology research done by Ligonier and Lifeway. Statement number 32 says that the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. And among US evangelicals, 100% of those surveyed agreed with that statement. Great. Statement number 31, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. Again, US evangelicals, 37% agree. Statement number two, there is one true God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Evangelicals, 96% agree. Statement number three, God accepts the worships of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Evangelical finding, 56% agree. Huh, this is interesting, right? 100% of evangelicals surveyed believe that this Bible is the highest authority for truth. And yet 56% believe God accepts the worship of all religions. So more than half are believing a statement that is incompatible with the truth of the Bible. Church, we need some guardrails. And so we're going to spend three weeks in the Apostles' Creed. Now, quickly before we start, the dictionary defines a creed as a formal statement of religious belief or confession of faith. And theologian J.I. Packer defines it this way. If life is a journey, then the million-word-long Holy Bible is the large-scale map with everything in it, And the hundred word apostles' creed is the simplified roadmap, ignoring much, but enabling you to see at a glance the main points of Christian belief. So the creed is our roadmap. It's our guardrails. It's our spark notes, our TLDR. And so here's what happens when you and I know the apostles' creed. First, we know what we believe. And that means that we can discern truth from lies because the only way to identify a lie is to know the truth, right? And I fear that in the American church, we might be more capable of articulating our core political beliefs than our core Christian beliefs. We might be more likely to put a sign in our yard like one of these, than to live our days in light of the core tenets of the faith. Too often, we live in reaction to something for or against. We live in reaction to whatever the cultural mantra is at the moment. And that's completely expected if you lack an anchor, if your life is just blowing with the winds of cultural change. And of course you're gonna get caught up in the moment, but if you know eternal truth, your life and your belief are firmly grounded. And from a place of truth, not only can you discern lies, but you can calmly, confidently, and wisely discern the hearts, motives, and longings of the secular creeds being espoused. Let me just say one more thing along these lines. I firmly believe that we can know truth. I also firmly believe that we easily take peripheral issues even from the Bible, and elevate them to a place of certainty that we just don't have. We are quick to want to be right, and often that leads less to truth than to arrogance. Now, because I'm a woman, I'll use women in ministry as an example. I believe that God created man and woman, and that's a core scriptural truth. Now, how exactly does God intend for us to live and work together in unity and purpose? I believe that a spirit-led life is one that's gonna take a humble posture and be willing to learn. I do not believe that posture allows for us to become rigid in our rightness. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There is absolute truth, yes, but too often we elevate non-essentials above essentials and we stop listening to anyone who doesn't share our opinions. I love Paul's words to the church in Corinth. He writes, "'And I, when I came to you, brothers, "'did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God "'with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you see that? Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For Paul, the main thing, was the main thing. And that's the good news gospel message of Jesus Christ. And you know what? That's the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That's the whole story of scripture. And it's the heart of the story that's told by the Apostles' Creed. The good news is the core truth that we can all stand on and all agree on. And this good news is revealed in three key teachings of the Creed. The Trinity, salvation, and the church. Let me briefly describe each. The Trinity, it's not a word used in the Bible, but since the very early days of the church, it's the word used to summarize the fact of one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons who reflect the fundamental nature of God. Now, because the Creed is organized around the Trinity, we're gonna spend each of these three weeks unpacking what the Creed says about one of the persons in the Trinity. The second key teaching is salvation. The doctrine of salvation is found throughout the creed, showing that salvation flows from the Trinity, forgiveness of the Father through the resurrection power of the Son and finding its fulfillment in spirit-empowered eternal life. And the final teaching is the church. Now the church is the people of God in every time and place, the gathered community of believers who will live forever in praise to God. God's people are described in Ephesians 1 as the fullness of Christ in the world. Now a quick note on the word Catholic in the creed, First, it's an adjective that means universal, and it points to the church around the world. No tribe, no language, nation, or person left out. Second, prior to 1054 AD, there was a single church, and then it divided into east, the Orthodox Church centered in Constantinople, and west, the Catholic Church centered in Rome. And then in the 1500s, the church in the west divided again when Martin Luther and others broke away. They were protesting some of the practices of the Catholic Church. And following this Protestant Reformation, all evangelical denominations have continued to affirm the creed without reservation. So in this way, the creed is the tie that binds us all. All Christ followers from the early church until now are bound together in common belief. Now a church or faith tradition that does not accept the apostles' creed is not considered Orthodox, is not considered by the Catholic or Protestant churches as a Christian faith. So anyone who does not believe in the Trinity, that Father, Son, and Spirit are fully divine, distinct from one another, and yet mysteriously one, anyone who doesn't believe that, not a Christian. Anyone who does not believe that salvation is not found or that salvation is found in Christ alone, not a Christian. Anyone who does not agree with the creed in its entirety is not considered a Christian. This includes Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, among the myriad other faiths in the world. So when we know the Apostles' Creed, we know what we believe. And more than that, we can share what we believe. So put yourselves in the shoes of a brand new Christian coming to be baptized. It's the first century A.D., Confessing faith in Jesus Christ is not the cool thing to do. So coming to be publicly baptized meant that you were sure about what you believe. It also meant that you were ready to share, share why you had done this thing called baptism. And when you understand each of the statements in the Apostles' Creed, you can share, explain and answer questions with confidence. A Christian who doesn't know truth can't share truth, right? Pastor and author, Alistair McGrath, says it like this. It's difficult to explain Christianity to an outsider if you haven't thought about it much yourself. Christians do indeed trust in God, but we believe certain quite definite things about him and about the impact this belief must have on us as believers. The Apostles' Creed is an ideal starting point for this vital process of consolidating your grasp of the faith. So if you're confident that you know what you believe, and that will per- then you can be prepared to share what you believe, the result of those things is our big idea today. You will live what you believe. Whether you've got the creed memorized, you've never heard it before, you've been a Christian for two months or 50 years, we share this in common. We're called to live as faithful followers of God, and in order to do that well, we must know what we believe. And today, we're gonna begin at the beginning. A.W. Tozer famously stated, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's where the creed begins with the first person of the Trinity. So what do we believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Let's examine this, let's break it apart, the three portions of this statement. So the first part, I believe in God. To make that claim is to believe that you can know God. You see, there's this sort of progression to belief in God. Both the Psalms and Paul's letter to the church in Rome acknowledge that there's this general revelation of God that all people for all time have known. Romans 1.20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now obviously, man has filled in the gaps of knowledge. From ancient religions to modern skeptics, we tell our own stories, we build our own constructs from what the sky and the rain can't tell us. But God didn't just stop at this general revelation and creation. The Old Testament is the story of God's special revelation to a chosen people, a people that were instructed to carry his story in their very lives so that just by their living and breathing, other peoples of other nations would know God. The Israelite nation did not always do a great job of this, but God didn't stop there because he sent his son, Jesus, right? He's the word made flesh. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came to reveal God, to make him known and to reveal God's love through his life and death and resurrection. And God still wasn't done because Jesus then passed his authority and commissioned his disciples to continue to make God known. And that as they were filled with God's spirit, they would spread the good news far and wide that every tribe and tongue and nation would stand together and say, I believe in God. This is so beautifully pictured in Revelation as the language of nations is used time and again to describe those who dwell with God. And from Moses to the apostle John, God's spirit also inspired and gifted men to write his very words, the scriptures. Now, all of this general and special revelations means that if we look for him, we will find God. He has chosen to reveal himself to us. He's not hiding. He's not far off. He's a self-revealing God through his creation, through his word, through his son, through his spirit, through his people. And so when we say, I believe in God, this is far more than belief in some higher power out there somewhere. This is much more than belief in the universe. This is belief in the God who says, I am, and then reveals himself over and over and over again so that you can know him. Now remember, you will live what you believe. And so if you believe God can be known, then you will live in close relationship to him and it won't feel so strange to tell others about him. So what do we believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Let's look at the middle portion of this statement, the Father Almighty. Now to call God by this title is to believe that you belong to a family. We see within the Trinity the relationship of a family, right? Father and son. Remember Jesus praying Abba, the Aramaic word for dad, And throughout the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see this relationship of the Son and the Father. Jesus loves the Father, does what pleases the Father, follows the will of the Father. And we see that God the Father loves the Son and makes the Son great. And it's from this familial love of the Trinity that comes the model for human families. Ephesians 3.14 says, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named family is god's really good idea and not just biological family he has planned something far greater within the family of god sinners like you and me we get to be adopted as children of the father by his gift of grace it's a gift freely given received humbly by faith in his son the apostle john wrote but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god and Romans eight fifteen says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You belong to the greatest family. It's the family of God. And inherent in this truth is the fact of your identity. Now, identity and tribe, those are buzz, buzzwords right now. And as Christ followers, we believe that we belong to his family and his tribe. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you're wondering how to define your identity, you have to start right here. You have to start with this key truth of our faith, that you have a father and he made you and he loves you. He is for you. Allow him to define your identity. Now, in such a short declaration of faith, every single word is important. So we don't want to overlook how the father is described. Almighty is an important adjective. The synonym used in theology is omnipotence. This describes God's all-powerful supreme strength. All that he intends, God does. When Job stands before God, he rightly declares, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. Theologian J.I. Packer wrote, The truth of God's almightiness and creation, providence and grace is the basis of all our trust, peace and joy in God and the safeguard of all our hopes of answered prayer, present protection and final salvation. It means that neither fate, nor the stars, nor blind chance, nor man's folly, nor Satan's malice controls this world. Instead, a morally perfect God runs it and none can dethrone him or thwart his purposes of love. The fact of God as father means that he loves you and he cares for you. The fact of God as almighty means that nothing will separate you from his love and care. Now, if you have a dad like I do, then you might get this, because my dad's the best. My dad's for me, my dad's always defended me, he never fails to tell me he loves me through both his words and for his actions. I've got a really good dad. But God the Father, well, he's the greatest defender, he is the most compassionate healer, and he is the wisest planner of your future. And every single time you declare, I believe in God the Father Almighty, you are reminding yourself that you belong to his family. You're one lucky kid. And imagine, think of it, he's got room in his family for lots more kids. So remember, you're going to live what you believe. And so if you believe that God is your almighty father, then you will live as his much loved kid. And it won't feel so strange to tell others about your awesome father. So what do we believe? We believe in God, the father almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So let's look at the last portion of that statement, creator of heaven and earth. If God your father is the creator of everything, then you're part of a story. The author of Hebrews helps us with this. He says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now Genesis 1 and 2 is of course the poetic description of God's creation of the world. Through the inspiration of the Spirit, Moses wrote these beautiful chapters so that the Israelites who had been slaves, who had been surrounded by the many gods and goddesses of the Egyptians, so that they would know the creative power of Yahweh, the Great I Am, creator of heaven and earth. Again, J.I. Packer gives us a really great sense of what Genesis 1 and 2 do for us. He writes, the message of of these two chapters is this. You've seen the the sea, the sky, the sun, moon, and stars. You have watched the birds and the fish. You have observed the landscape, the vegetation, and the animals, the insects, all the big things and little things together. You have marveled at the, com- at the wonderful complexity of human beings with all their powers and skills and the deep feelings of fascination, attraction, and affection that men and women arouse in each other. Fantastic, isn't it? Well now, meet the one who is behind it all. As if to say, now that you have enjoyed these works of art, you must shake hands with the artist since you were thrilled by the music, we'll introduce you to the composer. It was to show us the creator rather than the creation. Now, if Genesis 1 and 2 teach us to look at all things for what they reveal to us about the creator of heaven and earth, then Genesis 3, where we find the sin and fall, and Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, and beyond shows us that sinful humanity is always going to attempt to compose its own song And usurp God's position and write its own story. But only he who began the story knows how it is written and knows how it will end. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he said, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, God, the Father Almighty, is creator. We are created. We are made in his image, not he in ours. He's perfect and we are deeply flawed. From his all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful perspective that takes in all time, he knows all that is good and best. And our vision is so small and narrow. The whole world belongs to him. We're temporary residents and stewards, not owners. He's eternal. To him belongs past, present, and future, and we are, we're so small, a mere speck in the cosmos, a tiny blip in time. The truth is that the short story of your life is part of a much larger story written by God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. No matter what you've done with your life, it's best to let him write your story from today forward. He's the greatest author. And remember, you will live what you believe. So if you believe God's the creator of everything, then you're going to live knowing that each day of your life is part of the story he has written. You won't feel so strange telling others about the story of God. So what do we believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. One short summary statement, and all wrapped up in it is foundational truth for our lives. You can know God You belong to a family, you're part of a story. I wish it were just so simple for us to rest in these truths. But since Genesis three, a liar has been spreading lies. Satan's agenda is to lie to you and to me about everything. He lies about God, he lies about Jesus, he lies about the church, he lies about the power of the spirit. Jesus tells us that he's a liar and the father of lies. Listen, the golden age of God's people was Genesis one and two and since Chapter three God's people have had to intentionally tell themselves the truth, or they would get caught up in more and more of Satan's lies. And the truth is that you can know God, that you belong to a family, that you're part of the story. But Satan wants to throw you off balance, he wants to erode your confidence in those foundational truths. And what Satan does is he often comes at us at the truth with something that's truth adjacent. Now, because we were created to know God and belong to a family and live our lives as part of a greater story, Satan's going to tempt us to satisfy those very desires that God wants so badly to fulfill. Satan's going to tempt us to satisfy those desires in ways that are false. In our present time and place, consider these modern cultural creeds. All I did was Google, in this house we believe, and I found a lot of signs. Here's a few of them. Now, I don't know what that last sign means exactly, but all of these signs at their heart, there's a desire for truth. There is a desire for a greater story than the one our culture is telling right now. All those signs boil down to this. Every single person wants to know and be known. Every single person wants to love and to be loved, to find kindness and respect. And the answer to all those longings is always found in God the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so where Satan is trying to sow the seeds of doubt and discord and hate and violence, the creed reminds us, reminds you, that God created you, that he knows you and he invites you to know him. The creed reminds you that you're not alone, that God's drawn you into his family and your identity is found in the Father. The creed reminds you that God Almighty is in control and your life has a meaningful story and your story The story of God's family is the greatest story ever told. It's the only story with a guaranteed happily ever after, as we're going to discover in the next two weeks. So church, in this house of God, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I encourage you to read and reflect on that sentence this week, because you live what you believe. And the extent to which you believe these words of truth will determine how well and how intentionally you will live. And your family, your neighbors, your teammates, your classmates, your colleagues, your very life reveals God to them. And when you live what you believe, they will see a really good father. They're going to see a messy but unified family, and they're going to see a bigger and better story. They're going to see God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and then you can invite them to know him. Just two simple next steps this week. First, I'd love for you to commit to this series. You just finished week one, two more weeks focused on Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Join us for both. A second is to visit whoisgrace.com forward slash read. You can find our daily reading plan in PDF format or the link to our version plans. And if you've got Grace set as my church in YouVersion, these plans will be featured each week. Let me close our time together with Jesus' words in John 8. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Live in his truth, my friends.